Section three of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book one, chapter two. As soon as Julie was well enough, she returned home with the children to Glasgow. And there, when they were got past the first excitement of condolences, it looked as if things would continue much as they had been in Sholto's lifetime. Everyone said that the widow bore up wonderfully, that she was an example of Christian fortitude. Sholto's affairs were in good order, though people were surprised at the smallness of his estate, and business acquaintances shook their heads a little, murmuring the word speculations. But Julie herself made no complaint. She was indeed relieved at having to give up her husband's cherished project of moving to a grander house in a more fashionable neighborhood. Colessi Street, at the top of its precipitous, roughly cobbled hill, had at one time been a residential quarter of distinction. But in 1896 the roomy, solid, black houses, deep bitten by the carbonic deposits of half a century, with their square-pillared porticos and their stone areas guarded by rusty spearhead railings, had a forsaken look. Their domestic curtains were more and more giving place to the ground glass and perforated metal screens of institutions, and where once a famous surgeon had brought up his family, there was now a dingy training home for fallen girls. The place, however, was not without dignity, and to Julie and her children, the ugly, well-built house at the corner felt like a part of themselves. They all hated the idea of leaving it, even for the excitement of a West End mansion. From the big day nursery windows on the top story, which commanded wide gray views to the south and west, the girls could remember watching the distant ascent of their first fireworks, rockets soaring in honor of Glasgow's earliest exhibition. From the same windows they had seen with rapture the first lighting of the city by electricity, and three times they had hung out great flags over the sills for royal processions. Once Georgie was quite certain that Queen Victoria, driving up Sauchy Hall Street, had waved her hand in special acknowledgment to their high window. Within the house, as one entered, the first thing to meet the eye was a richly illuminated scroll, bearing the words, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. It had been Sholto's first act on returning from his wedding trip to hang this text, and Julie often looked at it now, remembering vividly how her bridegroom had stood on a chair to nail it in its trumpery frame full between the marble pillars of the lobby so that nobody could miss it. He had laughed and had kissed her afterwards, and the sight of it in these, the early days of her widowhood, always filled her with resolution. But as time went on, it began to be evident that Sholto's widow and his children were variously disposing themselves to serve the Lord in ways which Sholto himself would have dealt with summarily had he been alive. More and more Julie's resolution when she looked at the house text became linked with a stricken conscience. More and more she saw that to play the double part of father and mother was not going to be so easy as at first she had imagined. 
"'I wonder,' said Joanna tentatively one night as she and Georgie were getting into bed, "'I wonder what Father would say if he knew you missed out for Jesus' sake in your prayers now.' But Georgie was ready for such questions. "'Father isn't the same now as he was,' she told her sister. "'He understands everything now and knows just what I feel about God and all that.' It was at this time, within a year of her father's death, that Joanna had a dream about him. She was sleeping that night with her mother, in spite of many disadvantages, it was still regarded as a treat among them to sleep with mother, and had wakened suddenly at three in the morning, with a familiar pang of misery at finding no bedfellow. Julie had not even got so far as to fall asleep at her prayers by the bedside. So Joanna arose, and, shivering with fury and cold, went barefoot down to the parlour. There, as she expected, she found her mother seated before her untidy roll-top desk with her head fallen on her papers. She had dropped asleep over a letter in the middle of an erasure, and she wore the old squirrel-lined cape in which she always ran out to catch the midnight lifting at the corner pillar. When at last they were both upstairs, Joanna climbed back into bed, and, having exhausted herself in bitter reproach, lay wide awake and silent while her mother undressed. No matter how tired she felt, Julie was meticulous over her toilette. Always she had to dip her brush in the ewer so as to dampen the front part of her hair before plating it separately from the rest. Her creamy neck covered at other times, and her raised unconscious arms so astonishingly soft and youthful, gave the watching child a deep thrill of pleasure. Soon the thin, sleek plate was ready to be tossed back, and Julie turned out the gas. Then did Joanna creep immediately into her mother's arms, and in that warm, lovely encircling her thin little body was flooded with well-being. When they were both asleep, Joanna dreamed that a visitor was standing on the outside doorstep, ringing and ringing at the bell for admittance, but that she alone of all the house heard the summons. Going downstairs in her dream to open the door, she peeped first through the ground glass which formed its upper panel. Engraved on the glass was the head of a man with a curly beard, long believed by the children for some inexplicable reason to be a portrait of Satan, and by putting an eye level with Satan's eye they were accustomed to spy through upon visitors. Joanna did this in her dream and saw what froze her with horror. It was her father that stood without. He was unmistakable, though in some indefinable way horribly altered, and his presence filled her with repulsion. Father was dead. They had had a cable to say so, had mourned him, and he had no right to come back in this way. In terror, but under a kind of constraint, she opened the door one small inch, and that dreadful stranger who was yet her father tried to push his way into the house. But now hatred overcame every other feeling, and shutting the door with all her might, Joanna fled upstairs. As she went, all her determination was never to let others know who had called. On waking, which she did immediately afterwards, the child was first conscious of immense relief that no such return need in reality be feared. For, she said to herself in that conscienceless moment, we can do as we please now he is gone. But with complete awakening, all and more than all, the repulsion of her dream turned upon herself. How could she have acted so wickedly in sleep? 
thought so unkindly on waking. She lay listening to her mother's quiet breathing, picturing her mother's eyes and Georgie's could they have seen into her unloving mind. And for days afterwards, until she had done penance, her heart was heavy. The opportunity for penance came in this way. On the road to school, Georgie and Joanna had to pass a windswept corner where a disfigured woman sat all day on a camp stool. Slung from her neck was a stout piece of cardboard on which the words, Kind friends, I am blind, had been scrawled. And sometimes, though their father had always condemned what he called unorganized, indiscriminate, or spurious charity, particularly in any case so clearly marked as this one was for the blind asylum of which he was a director, one of the girls would slip a penny into the beggar's hand. Once Georgie had spoken to her, asking if she had any children at home, and Joanna had been smitten by the toneless negative of the reply. "'Do you think anybody ever kisses her?' she asked her sister, after they had walked on some way in silence. "'I don't expect so,' had been Georgie's answer. And as an afterthought, she wouldn't be very nice to kiss, would she? It could not be denied. Even while Joanna was feeling obscurely something of that strangest envy of the human soul, the envy of utter misfortune, she shuddered at the thought of touching the afflicted face with her lips. Yet she was sure she ought to. The unkissed woman with the terribly prominent closed eyelids persisted in her imagination. Night after night, when the figure of sorrowful censure visited her bedside, she said to herself, "'Tomorrow I will do it. Tomorrow I will make myself kiss her.' But day after day, passing to and from school, she had shrunk from the deed which the night before had seemed so possible and right, and gradually she was becoming used to the denial. Under the fresh reproach of her dream, however, Joanna conceived of this kiss, so long withheld, as the appointed expiation. At night she had anguished moments in which her father on one hand, and the blind woman on the other, leveled at her an accusation the less tolerable for being unspoken and on the following Sunday she was finally urged to the act. A strange minister was preaching in their church. He spoke with kindling eloquence about the woman who was healed by touching Jesus in the crowd, so that suddenly Joanna, strung to an ecstasy, took her resolve. It would be more correct to say that there flashed in her, in that moment, the absolute knowledge that she would accomplish the deed next day. On Monday she and Georgie passed the woman as usual. Georgie, who was holding forth on the iniquities of her former mistress, did not even glance towards the camp-stool, nor did she look round when a few yards further on Joanna murmured something unintelligible and ran back. Now that the first step was taken, only desperation held her to her task. Her breath went from her, her lips felt parched, and as she stooped to the sightless head, a clang of bells sounded in her ears. For a moment she lost all consciousness of her surroundings. On feeling the nearness of another human being, the poor creature on the stool instinctively held up her little tin mug, and as Joanna drew back after giving the kiss, she saw this gesture. There had been no other response. The face was vacant and unlovely as ever. Joanna felt deeply ashamed. In her self-centered anxiety about the kiss, 
She had forgotten to bring a penny. I'll bring you one tomorrow, she assured the beggar hastily. Then turning away, she sped after Georgie. Were you giving her a penny, Georgie asked, but without interest? No. What were you doing then? Nothing. Fastening my shoelace. Go on with what you were saying about Miss Dunbar. All her childhood, Joanna had been a fugitive from the realities immediately surrounding her town existence, and her intenser life was lived in her flights. She had many avenues of escape, but of these the best was provided by her passion for the country, and for her the country and every one of its joys was summed up in the single word Duntarvy. The children owed Duntarvy, which was a real place, as well as Joanna's home of dreams, to their mother. For Julie, if she yearned principally after her children's souls, cared shrewdly, too, for their bodies. She would not allow them to have dancing lessons, but she believed in young legs running wild. Above all, she insisted that a free country life, for at least four months out of the twelve, was necessary to counteract the early delicacy of Linnet and Joanna. The old farmhouse in East Perthshire had once belonged to the Erskines, though it had passed half a century ago into the hands of strangers. But when Joanna was five, Julie learned that it was to be let, and she gave Sholto no peace till he had taken a lease of the place. To the children there was music in the very name of the village from which Duntarvy was three miles distant uphill, and the square whitewashed house with its red tiling, a paradise for climbers, its ponds, its ruined sawmill, its haphazard garden full of gooseberries, currants, and wizened tea-roses, became a far dearer home than the one in town. Their last summer at Duntarvy was that before Sholto's death. For some reason there could be no renewal of the lease. Loud were the expressions of sorrow in the household, and Julie, in spite of the enormous addition the place made to her domestic cares, was as sad as the children. As for Joanna, her love for the place, as the end of the time drew near, increased to an agony, and more and more she withdrew her voice from the chorus of regret. Instead, when she could, she would leave the others, and run up and up the moor in front of the house, not once pausing till she reached a secret lair of her own finding, a dry, pale, golden bed among the high heather, close by the little fir-wood boundary with its rotting silvery fence, and there, flinging herself on the ground, she would bury her face in the sun-warmed moss and draw deep breaths of the earth. Among these embraces lavished by the child on the earth, embraces more fervent than any she had given as yet to a human being, there was one that stood out forever from the others. One September morning, during the last week of their stay, she had slipped out a while before breakfast, taking her way through the fringe of beeches which ran up behind the house, between steeply sloping fields, till it enringed the upper pond. The lower pond, near the outhouses and the swing, was a homely puddle, nozzled in by ducks and navigated by a raft made from the doors of an old shed, with Joanna's stilts as oars. But the upper pond, besides being twice the size of its neighbor, was a mysterious water. It was fed by a natural spring, and the legend of the neighborhood told of a golden cradle in its depths containing the body of a king's babe immune from mortal decay. 
It was rush-bound, betraying its treacherous service in glints only, and wild fowl of many kinds made it their habitation. Foxes in the moonlight slunk to its edge to drink, and on an islet in the middle, season after season, a pair of herons reared their young. To this haunted pool, with its girdle of beech trees, on which Joanna knew every foothold and every untrustworthy branch, she stole that morning. Lying concealed among the drenched reeds of the margin, she waited until the disturbed coots and water-hens were reassured about their interminable business. For what seemed an age she stayed motionless, listening intently to each tiny splashing and diving, to the whisperings among the bearded rushes, to the sudden plump of the frogs, to the chuckling of the waterfowl under the banks. At that moment the twelve-year-old child entered deeply into nature's heart, and for the first time it came to her that she might make of her rapture a place of retreat for future days. It was a discovery. Henceforth she felt that nothing, no one, would have power to harm her. For all her life now she would have within herself this hidden refuge. Even if she were to be burned at the stake, or flayed alive like the people in Fox's Book of Martyrs, she would be able to fly in spirit from her torturers to this reedy water, and they would wonder why she smiled amid the flames. So she lay on till she was bodiless, and only the cold penetrating through her clothes to her skin reminded her. She moved, and only in moving realized she was wet through and cramped. Her stirring startled the old heron. He rose noisily, first trailing his feet a little way along the surface of the tarn, then made away westwards till he became a far speck over the hollow where the nearest farm lay. Stretching herself and shaking the water from her hair, Joanna felt glad at the thought of breakfast. It was good that the others were waiting at home, sitting at a table spread with the flowery baps that came each morning fresh baked from the village and coffee and bramble jam and fresh butter, which she loved to greediness from their own cow's cream. But before turning homeward between the beech trunks, she stooped once more to the ground, and leaning on her two palms kissed the moist grass till the taste of the earth was on her lips. "'If I forget thee, O Duntarvy,' she whispered, "'let my right hand forget its cunning.' She was not clear about the meaning of this phrase, but she loved working with her hands, and the words expressed her emotion better than any other words she knew. Then she picked up some odds and ends, a small lichen-covered twig, a skeleton leaf, and the untimely fallen samara of a sycamore, to keep as remembrances of her vow, and racing back to the house she arrived in a glow, bright-cheeked, her short skirts dripping from the brackens. Mingled with these raptures were the early stirrings of Joanna's womanhood, and at seven she had fallen deeply in love with her cousin Gerald Bird, who was then twenty-five. Gerald, only son of Aunt Purdy, was a soldier, and he was recovering from fever caught in India when Julie invited him to Duntarvy. She was sure that he would quickly get strong in that wonderful air, and strong he did get in spite of his aunt's perseverance in probing him for what she called the root of the matter, in spite, also, of his having left his susceptible heart in the keeping of a blue-eyed jilt in Calcutta. 
He traveled with the Bannermans from Glasgow and on the little local line which ran from Perth to their village. The compartment was so crowded with people returning from a cattle show that he took Joanna on his knee. Gerald was far from being aware of the bliss his careless contact gave to the small girl, but so it was. For the last forty-eight hours Joanna had been his passionate slave. Now the loved one held her in his arms, and that she might stay there as long as possible, she pretended to fall asleep, leaning her head against the rough coat he wore. Ever afterwards the smell and texture of Harris Tweed recalled the delirium of that journey in the embrace of a god. To Joanna, Cousin Gerald was indeed a god. He transgressed against all her standards. He even shot chaffinches and robins with his revolver, and afterwards skinned them. Yet she asked for nothing better than to stand watching, while the plumage was slit down the breasts and slipped deftly from the piteous little bodies of Gerald's victims. The young man's lean wrists and his long fingers, so dark and merciless, thrilled the child to the soul. Secretly she imagined herself a little fluttering bird in their cruel yet skillful grasp, and she felt she would gladly have let them crush the life out of her for their own inscrutable ends. Actually, one wet afternoon it had looked to her as if her fantastic wish might come true. She and Gerald were in the coach-house where the Stanhope and dog-cart were kept, among a litter of odds and ends, gardening tools, empty flower-pots, wheelbarrows, and rolls of wire netting for the chicken-runs, which Sholto was always making, and for perhaps half an hour she had been watching in rapt silence while a pearly-breasted chaffinch was stuffed and sewed up. But, suddenly tired of his finicking task, Gerald threw down his work and stretched his arms above his head with a groan. He was sitting on the worn bench by the door, with his back to the dripping eaves, and presently, to amuse himself, he drew Joanna between his knees. Smiling, he pointed his penknife, that was still blood-stained, against the child's breast, almost cutting through the wool of her faded, tightly-stretched jersey, and he threatened to skin her like a little wild bird. To his surprise, for he expected her to wriggle or protest, Joanna stood dumb and quite still and strange in his grip. So he soon stopped teasing her. But he had provided her with a theme which she afterwards embroidered out of all recognition in many an erotic rhapsody. Joanna admired everything about her cousin. She idolized his brown face and bright gray piercing gaze, vibrated at the sight of his hands, and at any time, night or day, could see with her mind's eye the wave with which his hair crossed his brow. She had tried hard to make her own hair lie like his, but where the line of growth began round her forehead, there was what Georgie called her baby fringe and this crop of short new hairs, fairer than the rest, would do nothing but curve downwards in obstinate fine half-hoops of gold. There was, however, one secret about Gerald which terrified while it fascinated her. It happened one afternoon that, climbing about the old sawmill, he slipped and hurt his foot. Some stones in the crumbling walls had given way, and when he picked himself up he limped with a screwed-up face to the burn that flowed from under the ruin. 
Joanna was there in the boggy field picking marshmallows and some reeds to make a rattle, and Gerald sat down on the bank near her. Already his foot was beginning to swell, and he wanted to dip it in the water. Joanna stood beside him, clutching her heavy-headed yellow flowers, and the beards and sharp points of the reeds tickled her chin. She watched the young man take off his shoe with a grimace and peel the sock from the bruised ankle, and as he rolled back the grey flannel of his trousers halfway to the knee, she saw with a pang of delicious horror that his leg was hairy. From the ankle upwards it was covered with black silky hairs that clung to the gleaming skin. The child's first thought, that her cousin was the victim of some terrible blemish, passed almost at once. There could be no mistaking his unassumed indifference. So in a moment she knew she must accept this strange thing as normal. Men, grown-up young men, were like this. Later on she often visualized their amazing ankles guiltily. But she would not for the world have spoken of her discovery, not even to Georgie. Yet another incident which made its mark on the still-folded woman in Joanna belonged to this time at Duntarvy, and like the ecstasy by the upper pond it happened during the Bannerman's last summer there when the girl was entering her teens. She and the others, with Mabel, who always spent July with them, had been making blayberry wine down in front of the house by that same burn which further on flowed beneath the sawmill. It was late afternoon on one of these endless midsummer days of childhood in the north, when the sun puts off its setting till long, long after bedtime. The children had been up on the moor for hours past with mugs and baskets, picking the new ripened fruit which grows so fragrant and near the ground, its leaves showing dapper among the heather. Their faces and hands, their bare legs and underclothes were stained with purple. They had eaten their fill and had rolled afterwards on the green, richly decked table of the moor, and now, using their handkerchiefs as strainers, they were crushing the gathered berries till the dark juice ran through into jars beneath. Three times a sounding call had come from the house, and at last Georgie and Mabel lingeringly climbed the bank towards the road, dragging the small boys with them. "'Come on to supper, Joanna,' they cried over their shoulders, in their young high voices, as they came to the rickety one-legged gate of the garden. But Joanna, though she cried in return that she was just coming, made no movement to follow them. Instead, she began to trail her dyed handkerchief in the water, startling the little shadowy trout that were so hard to catch, and every now and then she tossed back the long, loosened strands of her hair, the better to see her own reflection in the brown mirror of the stream. Dreamily she wished she were as pretty as the little girl in the water. But a shadow passed, blurring the magic, and Joanna looked up quickly to see Alec Petty standing on the opposite bank. Alec, the lad from the nearest farm, was a handsome rascal of fifteen, supple as an Indian and almost as brown, with a skin as soft as the corduroy of his breeches. He often came across the hill to help with odd jobs at Duntarvy, and in a sense was the children's playmate. He was great at bird-nesting, at draining ponds and damming streams, 
and in the Easter orgies of wind-burning he was the acknowledged leader. Himself in the grip of a curious, still excitement, he would dare the others to jump after him over bigger and bigger bonfires, and Joanna especially would fly in a frenzy at his bidding over the great crackling bushes, her eyes tight shut, her hair full of sparks, and her clothes singeing amid the smoke. Afterwards, when the flames had died down, they would all rush about, stamping on the embers, kicking up fiery spouts with their scorched shoes, and screaming like curlews in a gale. Only when the fires were quite out and black would a certain estrangement in their relations with Alec reassert itself, and this would remain more or less until Easter came round again. He was useful to them, and in a way they loved him, but they did not trust him. As he stood now looking across at Joanna with careless, glinting eyes that were the color of the water below, Alec showed his white teeth with an impudent grin. "'Hello, Alec,' said the girl shyly. In reply, the boy jumped over to her side and immediately helped himself royally to her blayberry wine. Then, unasked, he plunged his fingers into one of the baskets and empurpled his mouth widely with a great handful of fruit. "'You look awful bonny, Joe,' he said thoughtfully with steady eyes on her, and again he crushed a mouthful of berries against his palate. It was the first time Joanna had ever been called pretty to her face. She was moved and did not know what to say. "'So do you,' she countered bashfully and at this Alec burst into a ringing, appreciative laugh. After that there was a silence between them, and Joanna gathered her things together and stood up. But the boy put out his hand hastily and touched her wet arm. He was looking at her oddly when she glanced into his eyes. "'If you'll come up yonder on the moor with me, Joanna,' he said, rather fearful, but with a word of cajolery in his rich voice, "'I'll show you what lads is for.' A minute later she entered the house, while Alec, unabashed by her shy denial, went whistling and cutting solitary capers across the darkening moor. But the thrill of the boy's touch remained with the girl, and the shameless young pagan look he had given her took its place also in her dreams. End of Book One, Chapter Two